Right, hello. Yes, I know, it's the start of a podcast and you just want to get straight into it, but if you like this podcast, chances are you're probably going to like other podcasts made by Lush, such as Tiny Revolutions, a podcast in which Tiff Stevenson interviews comedians like Sarah Pascoe and Nish Kumar about how comedy can be a force for social change. You can find it wherever you find podcasts, and chances are if you're listening to this, you're pretty good at the whole finding out where podcasts are thing. But as well as here, you can find podcasts by Lush on the Lush Player app. Okay, I'm done. Happy listening! Hello and welcome to the John Rod Tapes. And in this episode, I'm speaking to Viv Albertine about her second novel, a look at her dysfunctional family and her upbringing, which explains so much about the classic first novel. The second book, I wanted to write a fiction book. I was fed up with writing about myself so closely, you know, sort of um, exposing my life. And I thought I'd write a fiction book about a middle-aged woman so full up and pent up with anger that she eventually commits a murder only to find three months into writing that I was that woman and I had to face it and I had to write about what it was that made me so angry. And I didn't want to. I thought this is a very uncool thing to write about. A middle-aged woman so full of anger that she's having murderous thoughts, even if she's not committing the murder. But I had to face it was me. And I know through writing that when you come to a place where what you want to write about is uncomfortable and frightening for you, the thought of it, that's when you're on to the thing you should be writing about. It's a horrible universal truth about writing, um, that when you get that painful anxiety in your chest and no, I don't, and resistance, I don't want to write about that, that is when you are near the seam that needs to be mined. And it, it wasn't a pleasant seam to mine, you know, it, it, it wasn't, in the book, I don't come out well None of my family come out well, and I knew that. I didn't write about us in terms of, I want people to like me. I had to let that go. And for a woman born in the 50s, you know, we're brought up to want to be liked and to appease um, and to smile and to be feminine, all those so-called feminine traits. Um, And so it was a hard thing to throw away, to think, no, I'm going to write honestly about myself and the people around me, um, no matter what we look like. But what I did want to achieve at the end of the book is for a reader to understand why we came to the place, my family, where we were in such a dysfunctional state. And it's actually only really since, say, the 40s and 50s, and you know, some blame it even on 40s Hollywood, that have built the family into being this terribly unachievable um, kind of uh, state of being where, you know, little old mum and the apple pie and all that. You know, I have done film studies and often it does go back to the 40s Hollywood and a specific director whose name I can't remember who had a very unhappy family and wanted to sort of rewrite it through film. And, you know, most of the social mores we have nowadays are all concocted. They're they're not particularly so-called natural, you know, whether it's love and romance, nuclear family or whatever. And I just got fed up with being fed the lies. And I felt I'm at an age and a stage in life where I haven't got so much to lose if I write the truth about it. And it may be helpful to younger people to see someone they know of in some way um, writing honestly about their family life. And I I can't bear to write a book or make an album or anything if it's not in some way useful and certainly honest. I couldn't even be bothered to begin. No, everything you've done has been 
brazenly honest. Yeah. 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 Like, like the last record you recorded, both books. Yeah. That there is a cost, personal cost, to writing such honest material. I mean, in, in your close relations, that is likely to upset people close. Um, I, I often think that's why, you know, over the years, a lot of women haven't been artists. There are many reasons why women haven't been artists, you know, haven't been allowed to film school, haven't been allowed to art school, um, et cetera, et cetera, patriarchy. But on the other hand, um, this feeling of not want to, wanting to hurt those close to you, I mean, to be an honest artist, you have to be utterly selfish and reckless and, and honest and go places where, you know, the status quo don't want you to go. Um, and I think it's much, much harder for women to do that. And there's no way, mostly, that a man wouldn't go ahead from Picasso to whoever, you know, to, to Proust or whoever, to, and write the, what the hell, or paint what the hell they want to write or paint. Um, they have more of a space to do that. So I, I eventually, after much sort of wrangling in my brain, always come down on the side of the work. What I reached through writing the book was, you know, not some people say, oh, was it cathartic? Is it all sort of lifted off you? No, you know, you've had a whole lifetime within a family, as anyone does, which does affect you. And there are sort of psychic crimes that happen within every family, I should think. But what I did reach at the end was a complete understanding. And with that, anger just dissipates because, and that's what I wanted the reader to, to come with me on that journey. And... One minute you might hate one member and then think another me member of the family has done wrong, including myself. But by the end of it, you understand. And I go right back to my grandmother as well. You go right back and you understand what put all the pieces in place to make the people how they were. And it even made me understand criminals or criminal behaviour more because I thought, put anyone in the same circumstances with the same set of genes and the same environment and social times and you will get that person at the end of it. it you know, there's no point judging anybody, really, because the same set of circumstances would have made you that person. And it made me less smug, in a way, mm. over my small successes thinking really they were even that much to do with me. More, you know, a question of luck and genes, et cetera, et cetera, gets you where you are. And I'm, I'm probably the background you came from as well, um, giving the energy or the, or the, the drive to try yeah. and do something, would yeah. that be true? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was born into um, a very working class, poor family, which eventually very soon became a one-parent family in times when social care wasn't that great and even divorce wasn't that common. Um, girls didn't get much chance in life. Working-class girls had probably two chances in life. Um, what was it? You, you could be a nurse or a secretary. Um, so being born into those times, but with a mother behind me pushing me to think differently... Not to, she wasn't pushing me to achieve in any way, but just to question, question, question all the time. Um, it, it made me who I am. You know, it made me able in 1976 when the chance came, didn't matter what gender you were, you know, what you looked like, whether you could play or not, you could pick up a guitar. It made me able, my mother's upbringing of me, to pick up a guitar. 
because often when I get interviewed, a guy will say to me, oh, tell us about Sid Vicious, tell us about Johnny Rotten, you know, did Mick Jones teach you guitar, did Keith Levine teach you guitar? And I think, what made me a punk, really? Is, is it these spotty boys that I knew for 18 months back in the 70s? And I looked deeply into it, and that is one of the threads of the book. What made me this rebellious, angry young woman, and now older woman, who, mm. you know, who fought and questioned everything in life? Was it, was it that 18 months in so-called punk? No, it was my mother. She set me up from the age of four to be this person. Yeah, Difficult I, as it yeah, is. Yeah, I, I got that from the book. It mm. seems sense that your mother was a, dr a driving force yeah. in a sense. Yeah. A bit, not, not to say, oh, you must join a band, no. but, but sort of fostering a questioning spirit. Yeah. But, uh, but, but one that she didn't display herself that much, did she? No, because she was born into her times, which I also went into. Um, but there's this great quote by Gloria Steinem, the, um, the feminist, which is, I lived my mother's unlived life. Mm. And to me, and she's my generation as well, and I think very much our generation of girls lived the life that our mothers couldn't live because of the times and the very patriarchal times, but also the Second World War, you know, which, although it gave them a moment of freedom, was all clamped back down again when the war over was over. So... Um, my mother, without knowing where to push me, you know, she didn't push me towards medicine or this or that or anything, just tried to light a fire under me. And I was quite a passive, kind of lazy, untalented kid. <laughs> and I honestly think that in the end, it sort of almost unconsciously came to her that the only way I'm going to fire this lump up is to make her angry. You know, and John Rotten's book, Anger is an Energy Too, is, mm. is so true. So how, how would she do that? Would she just, from, from just talking to you or just, was it just an, uh, an unspoken thing? You oh, just no, felt it's, it. It's very spoken. Mm. Um, so every TV programme we watch, she'd pull apart. You know, why are there no women in here? Men don't, you know, women don't speak like that. He's, he's a bad man, da 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 da, da. Mm. Um, Politics, pull every, every, you know, newspaper story apart. And this is in a time when really that class of person didn't question authority. Um, it's very normal for us now to take the mickey out of, music um, politicians or not believe what they say but actually in the 60s and 70s it wasn't we were ruled by as we still are really but you know by the toss and um, it still was slightly a doff your cap type of mentality we, we didn't really think they were as bad as they were um, so my mother was incredibly unusual and was always pulling everything to pieces so where did she get that from she was smart mm. Not, she was bright, you know, born in another time. She would have been really something, but she was pulled out of school at 16 by her parents to go and work. Five, oh, because five the way kids. society was, yeah. she just had to be a mother. She just had a really good brain. Because I like that bit of the book where you, where you talk about when you go to Hastings and you get your, you're doing your pottery mm. and your art, art pottery, etc. Mm. And that, and you saying that's what your mother would have really liked to have done, but she couldn't do it in her own life, could she? Yeah, no, no. My, it's the first time when we, I, I hired a little studio in Hastings. You know, I had black wrought iron railings and big windows, and um, <clears throat> she walked into it, and her face just lit up mm. like she'd walked into a church, and she said. I would have loved something like this in my life. And even though I'd been in bands and I toured the world and I played electric guitar and done things girls had never, never really done at the time, she'd never shown any, I wish, I wish I'd done that. Until that moment when she walked into that studio in Hastings, it was funny, it just hit her. 
What did that make you feel, though? Did that make you feel, wow, this, I've got this connection at last that we actually do on the same page? Would, would that be a... um, I was shocked, actually, because she'd never been in the least bit artistic or shown any interest in being artistic. <clears throat> um, and I was just surprised because I would have thought she'd be much more turned on by my, me being in a band and getting to travel and play guitar and write songs and things that were way out of our sphere of understanding or aspiration. So would you say like you, you're like your mother's revenge in a way? I am my mother's yeah. revenge on society. She's literally sort of wound me up like a clockwork doll <laughs> and set me off and said, you know, take that. I, I was good material. It wouldn't mm. have worked on anyone. But actually, she had such a good brain. I was so fascinated by her. You know, in all the 60 years I knew her, she never once bored me. I mean, when you think of that in a parent, um, she's the most interesting person I ever met. Mm. And uh, she did. She wound me up. She made me a little warrior. And she set me out to sort of take revenge on patriarchy <laughs> and uh, all the men who'd done her wrong in life. Uh, it, it, you know, it was quite shocking to sort of understand it as I wrote. My God, my mother made me this little weapon. Mm. Um, and, you know, th there was a slight sort of um, resentment at, at, at some, you know, some points during the writing that that she'd made me into something I wasn't naturally. I'm very, very shy naturally, and yet she'd made me into this sort of tornado of anger and resentment and action. I mean, I've taken so many risks in my life. You become more and more isolated, more and more attacked and picked on, as we know, you know, even through social media, which didn't even exist then. But, you know, for a, a woman to sort of stick her head above the parapet is, mm. is you know, you get, you get much more sort of flack. The, the part of it is the outsiderness as well. That, that's, mm. that you've always felt like an outsider. Yeah. Does that sense come from your father? You know, he's, he's, he's in the book. Of course, he's in the book a lot, but he seems slightly more like a ghost-like figure in the book. Mm. But the fact that he's French Corsican living in in, in England, mm. it's not, even nowadays, after all this time, you can't. It's a very closed society, isn't it? Yeah. Does that outsiderness come from him as well? Well, both my parents felt outsiders. My mother, I think, because she was, you know female and working class and, and clever and stymied. My father, because he was literally an outsider, he had a little book saying alien on it, you know, and after the war, Second World War, um, the Brits were incredibly suspicious of the Europeans. So mm. anyone with a foreign accent, as they thought, um, was possibly a collaborator or, you know, when we know that half of Europe was against the other half of Europe. Half was fascist, you know, half was on Hitler's side. So it, it was not like an, you know, now it's quite cool to be French. Well, it wasn't then. It wasn't at all. I was embarrassed about my surname, Albertine, you know, made me sound very foreign. The thing was to be English. Mm. I, I changed my name to Viv Jones for about 10 minutes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah so... Although it's quite it's a romantic name now, it, it was it just set me apart in yet another way, you know. And then there were the ways you were set apart by society, you know, not taken seriously, never looked in the eye when you were spoken to, uh, not considered really just almost a piece of dirt to be a young woman in those days who was just a working-class girl. You, you were nothing in society and nothing was expected of you except to shut up, smile and marry young. And, uh, yeah, so it, it started there. Really, mm. the outsiderness. So, so it's always, yeah, from both sides of the family, there's yeah. a sense of yeah. that. So, so, I mean, obviously, there's resentment for the way, because uh, you ended up in divorce and it fell apart, your, your parents' relationship. But as you wrote the book, did you get more of an understanding of, of both your parents' 
the reasons why they drift apart, because one of the key parts of the book is mm. when you find the diaries, mm. isn't it? I found um, my mother's and my father's diary separately after they died. And um, the interesting thing was, and I was halfway through writing the book when I came across them, um, was they wrote, both wrote about the same two years, 1965 to 1967, because that's what you did in, in the 60s when you divorced. You had to do a lot of rigmarole to prove that the marriage wasn't working, wasn't easy to divorce. So a solicitor said you keep a diary of the day-to-day -day workings of your home and show where your, your partner's been unreasonable. And so they both separately kept diaries of the day-to-day -day running of the home. And I, of course, remembered my own version of those two years. And it was just so interesting because I was trying so hard to find the truth of my upbringing and then when I read my father's diary I felt so sorry for him suddenly I suddenly saw him through a whole different light he was just this confused French Corsican man who felt he should be treated like the king of his home but the 60s were happening and my mum was a bit too bright brighter than him and um, you know women's lib was coming in and he, he was like he was outmoded he was he was outvoted he, he was in a female household and he wasn't being treated how he thought he should be treated he was still in that old-fashioned peasant mentality um so and then when i read so i hated my mother for a bit whilst i read his diaries and then when i read my mother's diaries of course she put the whole thing into context so whereas my father would write oh got up at half six you know went Got, had a shower, shaved, went to the bank, got out, you know, 15 shillings, came home, bought a, bought a newspaper, read it on the uh, bench, had Marmite on toast. You know, it, it was very, very, very minutiae. Yeah. And my mother set the whole scene after the Second World War, his his fight to get national, British nationality, how that had affected his mind, and then his, his violence, etc., etc. And... You know, she contextualised so much more, and bit by bit, I remembered again what our childhood was like, how how sort of I don't know violent he was, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I wanted the reader again to come with me, changing allegiances as I did as I worked through the diaries, and I've woven the diaries, you know, through the book. But um, I took about a year just on the structure of the book, not actually writing, but structuring and planning and rewriting. Um, and how, weaving in the diaries and how much to put in and how much to leave out. So however much you're attempting to get to the truth of a subject, I'm busy editing, structuring, you know, replacing things, giving this much space to that one, this much space to that one. And I thought by the end of it, how near the truth am I? I mean, how much of a non-fiction book is this? Is it a truth, though? There's always... No. There's no absolute truth, There's no absolute it? truth. Yeah. You know, I think I say at the end that the truth is splintered. You know, it, it, it comes in all different ways, all different sort of um, people's points of view. Every single person in the book has got a different truth. And I had to sort of accept that so reluctantly at the end because I, I am an absolute type person. It's not a great thing to be, but... I thought I'd get to the absolute truth, and I had to, I had to face that. But in, in a, a sense, isn't that almost a relief that there is no absolute? Is it? It's, it doesn't um, move around, doesn't it? Depends how you yeah, feel, yeah. how everyone else feels, yeah. what 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 letter you find in a drawer or something. It changes all yeah. the time. Yeah, I mean, it? but the thing is, if you're a control freak, <laughs> right, yeah. it, it's quite a hard thing to come to terms with because you know I would love there to be an absolute truth, and I learn that truth and I accept that truth, but. You know, but the fact that things are always fluctuating and then I just get a different light shone on the, on the situation from a different angle and see a completely different scenario, it, it, it's still quite hard to live with. 
as you yourself get older, what do you, I mean, when you, you've written two books, I mean, what have you found out about yourself as well? That's such a huge question. I, well, yeah, you can do, you can do I know, small I'm, bits. I know yeah. I'm a control freak. Yeah. Um, but that's not a bad yeah. thing, though, is it? Especially if you're an artist, you have to be controlled. Yeah, you have art. to be. You have to yeah. be quite militant about hanging on to your vision because from every aspect, there will be people trying to water it down with good intentions sometimes, you know, and also, um, you know, the consumer side of work selling your work again it will be watered down and you know you get a bit of a name for yourself for fighting for the cover to be like this you know right from the slits my first band to now I'm still always fighting for the covers of my books and albums to be what they should be um, there's always people who think they know better or think this will sell more etc you know right through to the words etc so it, it's quite hard that continual fight but my mother said just before she died Vivi you're going to have to fight till the day you die <laughs> and I like, like at, she did. Yeah, yeah like yeah. she did. I looked yeah. at her and I, I said, really, Mum? <laughs> she just nodded. <laughs> and I thought, oh, my God, you know, I, I can't, I can't. And she was just saying, yeah, you have to write. She was fighting right to the end, you know. So did you have, like, a romantic notion that one morning you... Did yeah. you just get up and everything would actually yeah. just be in place? Yeah, at some point, yeah. you know, you've got home and you've got just about enough money dribbling in and you can just relax, but it's, it's constant, constant. You know, sometimes it's just on the street and sometimes it's in your work. But I think if you engage in life, and you have to engage, but uh, you do have to fight all the time if, if you think a bit differently. Hmm. If you don't want to just be do what you're told all the time, if you don't accept everything that's told to you by, you know, and don't want to fit in with, you know, the way the government sees things should be set up, set up or the way society has evolved, I've been brought up to question all that. So hmm. I'm going to have to fight. Thanks, <laughs> Mum. <laughs> well, I mean, that's, a, that's a brilliant... It's a brilliant attitude to be born with, isn't it? Or to be given, or to be born with. Is it, with. though? It's an uncomfortable it's, life. It's difficult, but I think it's... Can you imagine how... Uh, claustrophobic and suffocated you would feel if you lived a completely normal life. It'd be inside you, resisting, well, it, wouldn't I it? Not know. You tried, didn't you, and it yeah. didn't work, did I it? I did try, but if someone hasn't been raised to be a questioning, annoying, <laughs> aggressive, yeah. sort of a contrarian, then I, I do often think in my daydream moments, you know, what it might have been like to have lived an unquestioning life, you know, and they say the unquestioned life is not worth living, but honestly... It's quieter. <laughs> it's it's less, less upsetting. I mean, I have, I have so much angst because I, I think too much. My mother brought me up literally to look for interesting. Is your life interesting? You know, what have you done that's interesting? Come home with a story that's interesting. You know, it didn't matter how, how wrong the night had gone. If I, I come home, sit at the kitchen table with a cup of tea and go over the evening and it might involve, I don't you know, not being able to get home on the transport, you know, meeting a dodgy person who gave me a lift shouldn't have done that, you know, just got by with the skin of my mm. teeth out of that situation. This went wrong, that went wrong, and here I am. And that, she would be enthralled. And I think that sort of taught me to keep taking risks. And again, a very unusual thing for a girl who's born in 1954 to do to keep going out and taking this risk. Because when I came home, my mother was all ears. <laughs> so you had, to, you had to take risks, get a good story. Yeah. Because she, she I, I felt like she had not got the best story. No, no. <laughs> you know, I had, to co I had to come home. Or if I had a good story, you know, and I was literally living this life. And she, her eyes would be bright and shining as I told these 
crazier and crazier stories. So she's, she is almost living her life through you. Yeah. She, you, you escaped, no. and this is always... She always wanted to do this. Yeah. She, she wanted to hang out with Sid Vicious, yeah. really. Yeah. yeah, and go to art school. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. You know, yeah. She wouldn't have seen it in those terms, but she wanted to live her life, and it was taken from her. She had, you know, she had a first family when she was 19... That all went horribly wrong, you know, so she mm. missed even the fun of the war because she got pregnant right at the beginning of it mm. with an, you know, an unpleasant man then had us. So, yeah, um, I, I think, again, I, I was aware that she was living my life and I was feeding her these stories. That wasn't unconscious. Um, but looking back, it did make me someone who took the most ridiculous risks in life. Um, when a young woman wasn't usually taking those risks and therefore it took me into areas that young women didn't go. I was one of the first female directors, you know, filmmakers. I was, uh, you know, one of the first guitar players mm. in a band. I hadn't even thought you could be such a thing. I didn't even know a woman could be an architect or a lawyer when I was young, let alone be in a band or, you know, yeah, be a filmmaker or something like that. So a lot of these, I mean, you... In the book, you talk about when you talk to your mother, mm. and like you're saying then, you, you tell her all these stories, and it's you tell her everything, right? It's a very close everything, relationship. Yeah. So this storytelling, you, when you talk to your mother, do you think that kind of feeds into eventually writing the books? You, you, you almost think of your life in story terms. Well, that's a good point, actually. I hadn't really thought of that, but when it came to writing, I had no idea if I could write or not. I, I In fact, what I did was I would see the scene I wanted to write about. And I thought in terms of scene, because I had done a degree in filmmaking by then. And um, I'm a very, very visual person. And I, li I remember visually. And I thought, I'll just describe that scene on the page. I wonder if that will work. And I, I, you know, tried to sort of... And I, I think I write quite visually. Um, so that's how I wrote. But probably telling my mother those stories every night did... must have sort of honed <laughs> my storytelling skills... And uh, yeah, well, I didn't even think the idea that it's a story, it is a story, it's not just going out and hang around as a little spotty bounce. Yeah. There's actually a story there, isn't yeah, there? Yeah, there's a story. I mean, every night there was a story. And, that, and also, I'd go very deeply into all the relationships, you know, relationships with the rest of my band or relationships with Mick Jones or whatever mm. boyfriend I had at the time. She, I'd tell her all that as well. I just thought, if she's going to be my confidant, there is no way I can edit what I say to her because otherwise, she cannot give me decent advice. And my mother was so clever that her advice, I wanted her advice, I wanted her take because it was unusual and clever. So I told her everything, every wrong thing I did, you know, every bad thing in a relationship and uh, yeah, she pronounced. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do you still feel her presence? I still feel her presence I mean, very you, much. In your yeah. head do you still think I should be telling her this story and things? And... Yeah, I still think very much that, you know, that I wish I could tell her this or show her that, I wish she knew about this or that, but frankly, I had her so long and so completely, I think yeah. I'm being selfish by saying that, because I really did have as much of a parent you can possibly have. I squeezed every last drop out of my <laughs> yeah, mother, yeah, yeah. <laughs> much as she did out of me. And um, after she died, immediately after she died, I was utterly furious with her, and not for dying and leaving me. I suddenly got this huge welling of anger towards her, like she was a very, very bad person. It lasted about 18 months. Was that a way of dealing with it, dealing with the grief? I, I think it was a very deeply buried awareness, which was not at all conscious of um, what the wrong things she had done to me, which were probably, you know, moulding me and twisting mm. me. And um, when I was younger, she, she was quite cruel to me because she very much didn't want to lose me in the divorce. And, and she, the only way she could feel 
she could hang on to me, I think, in many ways, was to undermine and belittle me. I mean, it happens in relationships all the time where uh, someone will psychologically sort of almost abuse the other person to undermine them and make them feel, you know, take away their agency in a way. Mm. And she did that in the 60s to me because um, she, and, I, and when I explored it deeply in the book, she did have no other choice, no other weapon. But that's quite complicated. But um, that's what resurfaced. And it is amazing how much in you is buried and it will come out at some point. And you think you know everything about yourself and you really don't. Yeah, there's quite a bit of that in the book. Well, not. I mean, there's bits in the book where you mm. talk about, was your mother actually playing you in yeah. a way? Yeah, yeah. yeah. My, you know, I, I, as I wrote, you know, and the wonderful thing about writing, and you don't realise until you do it, is things do come through your fingertips. They sort of Yeah, they bypass yeah. consciousness and they come out of your fingertips. And uh, you learn as you write. And I suddenly saw my position in the family, the joker in the family, mm. the appeaser. Um, and it was a complete light bulb moment where I realised I've always between, been between the two aggressors, um, whether it's my mother and father or my mother and sister or sister and father or whatever. I've always been that pivot in the middle of appeasing and um, it, it's quite a stressful role for a young person. And I think it stops you growing up in many ways because you never quite had the childhood. I was mm. always kind of the grown up in the middle. I mean, were you angry at yourself when you, when you wrote the book? Um, I was disappointed in myself sometimes and how I behaved. Um, mm. Not so much angry because I was sort of understanding by now how it had all come about. And, um, you know, we, we all tend to sort of slightly feel sorry for ourselves. I had to really <laughs> knock that on the head, mm. any sense of, oh, I feel sorry. And actually, once you map out a situation, you don't feel sorry for yourself. You get a much more crystal clear sort of overview um, but I, I, I have been disappointed in how I've behaved, and I've put that in the book as well. You know, I haven't glossed over my own behaviour. I mean, and this is what makes, to me, the second book far more of a punk rock book than the first book, mm. which is obviously, it's got the soundtrack and the yeah. characters, but the second book, because it's got all that. The big thing about punk, the questioning thing, where you questioned everything, didn't mm. you? And also, there's, there's no mercy, is there? No. <laughs> Not into yourself, yeah. is there? And the second book has far more of that yeah. than the first book. The, that's what I, I think people don't get sometimes, is just because you're not talking about guitars and spiky-haired boys doesn't mean this book isn't punk. It is much more punk. It's, it's, it's so raw. It goes right down to the blood and the veins of, mm. you know, of a situation. It, it's, it's still written in that short sentence, you know, sh sort of shock-type style. It's very, it cuts right down to the, you know, the nub of everything. It, it's a much better book in terms of writing and where it hits. But I don't know if that's something that makes it not so sellable because you can't hang it on a guitar, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, in Britain, they love their boys with guitars. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I know in 40 years' time it'll find its place, the second book. Mm. But, um, yeah, things take their time. I learned that with the slits. You know, we weren't taken seriously at the time, 34 years, you know, 30, 40 years later, being asked to talk at museums and the British Library <laughs> and, you know, talk to politicians. We wouldn't even been let in the door of a cafe, let alone a restaurant back then. It's but, I mean, timing. I mean, success obviously makes life easier, but you're not sitting there writing that book thinking this is going to be a success. Wouldn't no. this make a wonderful film? No. That's not... I can't help but under, under go against that. 
Mm. You know, the first book I thought could have been subtitled Deconstruction of a Legend, because, you know, after disappearing off the earth for about 30 years, people started to say, oh, Viv, you're a legend. They sort of rediscovered the slits through the internet or whatever. And I thought, I'm not a legend, and I'm totally against legends. You know, if you start thinking people are legends, you start thinking they're better than you or different from you, and therefore you can't achieve what they've mm. achieved. And I very much think Anyone, given the right circumstances and confidence, can achieve, especially the sort of thing I've achieved out of nowhere. So I wanted to pull that idea of legend apart. Um, I deconstructed myself in both books, really. I think it's quite interesting to play with the fact that, you know, say young women and young men especially might know me as, you know, one of the first female guitarists in this sort of wild band, still a wild band. Um, and yet I, I play with the fact that as an author, my personality is kind of known a bit, and then I deconstruct that personality. You think that's cool? I'm going to show you how very uncool mm. I am, right down to the blood. Mm. Yeah, well, there's yeah. lots of blood. And yeah. It's, it's and very physical, very human, yeah. which is great as well, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Which is actually how people talk, but they never put it... No. You don't write it down, no. you just sort of talk. No, I've had some people yeah. say, oh, your, your, your book's vulgar. And I, well, why is it vulgar to talk about natural human body functions? Which everybody does every day. Functions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's really yeah. saying more about you. If you think that, you, you know, you're that <laughs> yeah. uptight. And yeah. it's also something that's very much been a female domain and is belittled, I think, or has been belittled, although that was a woman who said that to me, um, mm. has been belittled, you know, talking about bodily, bodily fluids, blood and the rest, um, mm. because it's been considered something females deal with. Um, and I think it's time to put it back out there, you know, in art. It is mm. out there in art much more. And, and again, it's, it's, it's very to the core of how I would understand what punk rock was, you know, the, yeah. the, the, the honesty of it, the, you know, of the, uh, the openness. Yeah, the bodily functions of it all. Yeah. yeah. Although, you know, we were often bleeding, us punks, because it was very violent times. Even the girls, you know, we'd had cuts and bruises all over ourselves. But you would never talk about the fact you had a period. And you would never want a boyfriend or anyone in your circle to know when your period was on. Whereas now my daughter will talk about it with her boyfriends and male mm. friends all the time and amongst each other. And it's out there on social media and it's in adverts and et cetera, et cetera. But for all the fact we were raw back then and being very honest, there were still many, many parts, especially of being a woman, that were completely hidden. So when you go back and think about the first book now, you know, after doing the second book, what, what's your thoughts on the first book? Does it seem different? Does it seem... Um, do you think, oh, I could have gone a little further here, or...? I don't think I could have gone any further. <laughs> <laughs> I know you once told me that when you wrote it, you wrote about all the people in there and you had to take stuff out because it, yeah. it was a bit too much. No, I, some of the I only took stuff out of the book, really, if it didn't feed the book. And because there are things that would have been great to have been in that book, but they, you have to absolutely, Stephen King says, you know, the book is the boss. And in the end, the structure of the book, the momentum of the book, you, you have to be, you know, you have to kowtow to that in a way. So although that was a great story, it slowed down that, that, that chapter, you know, or it just took you off on a tangent, which ruined the, the sort of drive, the narrative drive or the arc of the book. So. That's the things that came out. And sometimes there were petty things where I wanted to get back at someone who'd done me wrong. First two drafts were full of them. And bit by bit, they come out because, again, they slow down the book. They mm. take it off into a stupid direction. Um, they're all stored somewhere, I hope <laughs> never to be found. Just in case. Yeah. Yeah. But um, I, I, I never, whether it's in something I've written or in the life I've led, I don't think I could ever say, I wish I'd done more. I wish I'd gone further. Mm. 
I've always gone too far. And both books are beautifully edited. It's, you know, it's not, there's no waffle, it's just... No, they're to the bone, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. I, I rewrite about between 50 and 100 complete rewrites, which I know almost no one does. I partly do that because I'm not confident that I'm a writer. You know, I haven't got a degree in writing. I haven't even got an A-level in English. So part of that is insecurity, that I'm going to have to go through it so many times to make sure that I haven't messed up somewhere and that the, the punctuation... The punctuation is looked over by the um, publishers, but I hand the book in, done, and absolutely viciously comb through that book mm. literally rewrite 50 to 100 times it's exhausting mm. um, and you have to be very careful when you do that that you don't take the life of the book out so it's not an easy thing to do to rewrite pare it down pare it down but at the same time keep the energy keep the youthfulness you know keep that initial sort of burst that you had when you when you wrote that chapter or whatever um, I think I'm getting better at doing that but I will always rewrite so much because again it's back to the ethos of punk which wasn't called punk at the time mm. but amongst us we would always discuss that there should be no fat on a song there should be no you know guitar solos wandering off at the end of the song there should be no fade outs you say what you want to say you use a minimum amount of chords you say it as short and sharp as possible absolutely honest in your own voice not in an american accent or whatever and that very much gelled with me as a way to approach any work I do. And it, it's great because it's not something that I just picked up at the time. It's something that utterly made sense to me as a way of working. And 40 years later, still is mm. completely the rules I work by, which is also what makes the books punk. Mm. So you don't have to be gobbing in the streets and have, you know, sort of black round your eyes and slashes and T-shirts and studs and all that to be a punk there are certain sort of rules that you can take with you in any medium. And I learned that in the first book because I very much felt, how can I be honest to my roots and to anyone who was so moved by punk as I was, you know, that way of, you know, looking at life and that honesty and that sort of minimalism. And I, I thought, how can I take that into another medium like a book? And there were ways to do it. You know, there were sentence structures, there was book structure, there was tone of voice, there was subject. You know, there's so many ways I could translate that ethos into writing. Yeah, and it's, it's a brilliant lineage from that point of time to this. So it's, I'm finally um, mm. a third book. Could there be a third book? Um, I haven't written for a year. I cannot even face it. You know, and again, I keep <laughs> thinking, am I a writer? Well, am I a writer? I'm just, a, you know, always that feeling. Am I a fake? Am I just a chancer? But because I haven't written for a year, um, I, I, it was so extraordinarily exhausting to write that extremely personal book. And there are even times in the last year I thought, why did I do that? Why did I write about my family like that? You know, am I insane? But you get in, locked into that headspace. And it's so incredibly personal. And have I sort of almost damaged my karma by doing it. You know, when you step back from a piece of work which you've been so immersed in six months later, you can't really question your sanity. You know? <laughs> and I, I said to my best friend, you know, what on earth am I doing, you know, doing this, choosing to be so terribly honest in public when I'm such a private person? So for a year, I, I couldn't even go there. 
I've been painting my walls, mending things. I've been doing very, very physical things. I find them an absolute antidote to, you know, when I've gone too deep emotionally, choosing colours. I always come back to colour. I write about colour in the second book, how it saved me. Purple. Purple. Um, But... And all, all the way through the second book are tiny little sort of smudgy photographs of things. And they're almost like stepping stones through the book where I can just touch and feel grounded. There's no people, no pictures of people. And architecture, but not in a highfalutin way, but literally like bricks and the colours of a rug or, you know, a paint mixed by Corbusier, which I managed to find, mm. which is sent from um, Switzerland, just a tiny little pot. I mean, they absolutely ground me, those things. I, I know where I am with things, and that's what I've been doing for a year, but there is another book brewing. Oh. And uh, it's yeah. going to completely, um, I don't know, not be commercial. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah that's that's very personal again. Is it I hope not personal, but... You know, one, one person in an audience said to me once, do you think you start out trying to write fiction? Because that's a way into something that you're frightened to go into. Yeah. So I'm trying to gonna try and write fiction again, but maybe that's a way... Warming up. That's a gate yeah, yeah, yeah. opening for me. So I think, oh, I'll write about a middle-aged woman, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and then I find out it's me again. I don't could know. you actually even do next one as fiction? I'm going to try, but I'm, yeah. I've got a horrible feeling. All the way through, I'm going to think, I am that horrible woman, I have to write the truth. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Well, good luck with that, Viv. Thanks. Thanks for coming down. Thanks, John. Yeah. You've been listening to the John Robb Tapes with me, John Robb. Brought to you by Lush and Louder Than War and produced by Sophie Porter. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and share. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, you'll probably like other podcasts made by Lush. Maybe, potentially, hopefully. Definitely. You should tune in to the Lush podcast with me, Nilla Davies. And me, Olivia Graham. Available on iTunes. Like, link, subscribe. (laughs) 